Open your Bibles if you have them to Psalm 21. Psalm 21 is where we're going to be this morning. Psalm 21. We are, I think, far too easily pleased by trinkets. You needn't look any further to know that's true than the McDonald's Happy Meal. McDonald's, I'm convinced, has made a killing off that little cheap plastic toy that they put inside that paper bag. It's made of the same material that their food is made of. They just reform it and shape it. It's the only reason I'm convinced kids actually want to go to McDonald's. is just for the Happy Meal toy. That's it. Their food is not good. I'm not trying to disparage McDonald's for any of you McDonald's lovers out there, but it doesn't hold a candle to Chick-fil-A, right? I mean, you can get it on Sunday. That's about the only... <laughs> but, but it's just, it's just not as good. And yet, people want to go there, and I'm convinced kids have their parents hooked by that little toy that they find in the bag. And then eventually, your house is overrun with these cheap little toys, and eight years later, you go to throw it away, and the kid says, No, not my Happy Meals toy. It's ridiculous. But you know, as you get older... Happy Meals toys just get bigger and more expensive, and they don't come free in a bag anymore. Yep. And you have to pay for them, and they become made of harder materials and things like that. But they're just as disposable. I mean, we, we see these cell phones that come out every... And I'm not... Hey, I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking about me, all right? I'm in the pew on this one, okay? Trust me, all right? But we see these cell phones, they come out every year, and they, they get on stage, and they talk about the new bells and whistles that they all have, and we all salivate, ooh, it's got this new thing on the camera, and it's going to be amazing, and then we get it, and we're so excited, and we unbox it, and we get all the little setup and everything like that, and then a year later, this old thing is worthless, it goes slow, as soon as they announce a new one, it slows down, I'm convinced of it. And so then we throw it away, it becomes disposable, and we get a new one, right? Because this one's got way more promises to it. C.S. Lewis once said, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In our passage this morning, David is going to turn to the Lord and praise Him for His own salvation. Let's look at this in Psalm 21, verses 1 to 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in Your strength the King rejoices, and in Your salvation... How greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips, Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestowed on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, 
and through the steadfast love of the Most High he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give us understanding here over this text, that as we seek to unpack it in all of its many facets, I pray that you give us help. Speak in place of me to us, your people. Allow us to hear with ears ready to receive the gospel, a heart willing to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. To put it very simply, the book of Psalms is a hymnal. I think you're all pretty familiar with it that way, or have probably grown up hearing about it that way, that it's a Hebrew hymnal, that every psalm is a different song to be sung, essentially, by the congregation. And so, just like, though we don't have, we have the words, obviously, we don't have the music for the hymnal, but we have the words, and as such, in a hymnal, you can turn to any hymn, and they're beneficial for you. You can open up the Baptist hymnal, and you can find Amazing Grace, like what we just sung, and you can read it there, and it is beneficial for you to sing. And it has zero connection to Be Thou My Vision that is next to it. They have similar themes, but other than that, it's, uh, they're different hymns altogether. You can sing one, you can opt, opt not to sing the other. They're not intimately connected. Now, in this, this hymn book that we have, often we have read it that way. We open to a psalm, we read Psalm 1, and we don't really connect it to Psalm 2 at all. Or we may open and we may read Psalm 121, and it has no real bearing on the psalm that came before it or the psalm that came after it. Every psalm is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, as Paul would say. However... While the book of Psalms is an ancient hymnal, it's also arranged in a particular order. These Psalms have been put together in a particular order for our benefit. And so while these hymns stand alone as beautiful instruments in an orchestra would, when you put them together, they actually work in concert with one another. And so the Psalter which is just another name for the Psalms, the Psalter, is comprised of five books. And often this escapes our notice as we just read through Psalm 1 to 150. Book 1 is Psalm 1 to 41. And that's what we're right now in the middle of, or we're, we're picking up again in the middle of from last year in our time in the Psalms. And as we're going to see, along the way, each of the five books of the Psalter are going to end with a psalm of praise. And so, our book right now, which is book 1, Psalm 1 to 41, it's going to end in Psalm 41, saying this in verse 13, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. 
The second book, book two of the Psalms, is going to end in 72 with verse 19 saying this, Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. They've been arranged on purpose with that kind of structure. Now, the book of Psalms is a book of praises, and each book presents a praise to God through all of life's circumstances. But here's the thing about Psalms. It's honest praise. It's not fake praise. It's honest praise. So much of what passes for praise in the church today, and especially in our culture, is dishonest praise. It's the kind of praise where you put on a smile before you go into church so that no one knows about the tears that you are crying in your car. That's the kind of praise that passes. It's sort of fake praise. Or it's the kind of praise where you, you say in the midst of such anguish and terror, with a smile, God has a plan. And what you really mean in your heart is, I hate this plan. It's not a comforting plan. This is a terrible plan. That's dishonest praise. The book of Psalms will teach us how to genuinely praise God through both happy circumstances like the psalm that we're looking at this morning and then lament like the psalm we'll be looking at next week where through tears and with great anguish and clenched teeth the author is going to say why have you forgotten me it's like i'm not here it's like you don't even hear me are you even there when i pray Perhaps in the end, in our study through the Psalms, we're going to be here every summer for several years, as the Lord wills. Perhaps in the end of all that, we won't see that kind of lament as anti-Christian. But as actually expressing the emotion that God has given to us. At the same time, we need to put it in a category. We need to make sure that what we're doing is biblical in our anguish as well. We're right in the middle of book one in the Psalter, and each of these five books are comprised to make a different argument. So Psalm 1 to 41 makes an argument. Then Psalm 42 to 72 will make a different argument that progresses a little bit further. So Mark Futado has said this, and I, I agree with him, book one, which is Psalm 1 to 41, is about the establishment of God's kingdom and how God is reigning over the world through His anointed King, which is originally David, but ultimately Jesus. And that's where we're going to really focus on a lot of our study in the Psalms, is that this is originally about David, it's ultimately about Jesus, and it's only through that progression, originally David, ultimately Jesus, that we can really see the impact of the Psalms for us as Christians today. So remember... The king, especially David, the king of Israel, especially David, is seen as the tip of the spear of the kingdom of God. God is essentially thrusting the, His kingdom into the world, and the tip of that spear is the king over Israel, or it's supposed to be the king over Israel. And His kingdom is coming into the world to do battle with sin in the human heart. What does the king begin to implement 
in the land, but worship of the one true and living God. There's the establishment of the tabernacle in the land and then ultimately the temple under King Solomon. And all of this is meant to make the children of Israel a kingdom of priests for the nations that they can welcome the nations in and introduce them to the one true and living God. They may show them how to worship God here. And the king is the tip of the spear that God is thrusting into the world to reintroduce sinful humanity back to Him and give humanity a way of accessing Him. So the king is the tip of that spear. But what we ultimately see by the time we get to the New Testament is that David wasn't the tip. He was more like the butt of the spear or the back end of the spear. That he was the beginning of the kingly line that would eventually lead to the tip of the spear who is ultimately Christ. What David hoped to do with the kingdom of God, he ultimately failed to do. And every king after him until we get to Jesus who actually accomplishes that task. So here's what all that means for us in our passage this morning and really any time we read the Psalms. Sometimes we're going to read the Psalms, we're going to read a given Psalm, and we're going to feel like I don't really know how that applies to me. You ever read David in the Psalms praising the Lord for some military battle and you're thinking, you know, it's been a long time since I've led an army. It's been a really long time since I led an army. And I don't really know what that's like. And it's hard for me to really think when when David talks about giving him life here, he's not just talking metaphorically. He went into battle, and he's actually talking about, I have life. (laughs) You gave me victory over this enemy. There's a real enemy out there. And sometimes we sit there on our couches, and we read this psalm, and we're like, you know, I I I don't know that many enemies that I have. Or maybe sometimes there's this elated feeling that the psalmist is feeling, and you're going, you know, I'm going through so much pain and agony here, I'm having a hard time relating to where the psalmist is at, so we just turn the page. Let's go to the next psalm. Maybe there's something in it for me. How is it that we actually read this when David's feeling victorious? And you know what? I don't feel very victorious right now. So in this first book of Psalms, it's going to be really important for us to not think first, how does this apply to me? But first think, what did this actually mean to David and his original audience? Let's start there. And that's going to be how this sermon flows today and probably for the next few weeks. Let's first think, what did David mean by this and how does this apply to his original audience? And then, let's jump to Jesus. What does this mean now in light of Christ? How is Jesus in this psalm in any way? Then and only then can we come down to the application, what does it mean for me in light of Jesus? All right, so with that in mind, this passage is going to be divided into two parts. We're going to see the first seven verses as one part, and then the last six verses as a second part. And the last six verses, it seems, are written to a specific person, probably the king, but we'll talk about it in a minute, and, and what will happen in the future for him. So the first thing we see in the first seven verses is that the Lord has saved the king from his enemies. That's very clear. 
makes that abundantly clear right off the, uh, off the bat. The Lord has saved the king from his enemies. So, the, so first, let's think about this hymn and what it would have meant to David and David's original audience. It seems David is obviously writing this psalm based on the title up at the top with the expectation, mind you, and this is important, don't throw away those titles at the very top, with the expectation that this be given to the choir master who we would assume then is going to take that and lead his congregation and his choir in singing this psalm that the king has written. And the first seven verses are sung, it seems, by the choir or the congregation to the Lord and about the king. Yes, that's the direction it seems that it's taking. It's sung to the Lord and it's sung about the king. And there's two things that the congregation is praising the Lord for. Pay attention to them. Two things that he's praising the Lord for. And the first is that God has made his strength known to his people in deliverance. God has made his strength known to his people in deliverance. He has physically delivered him. There's little doubt that this is most likely, as I said earlier, some sort of military victory that David and his people have accomplished, and the Lord has given them a physical victory in battle. They've gone to war, and they've had some sort of physical victory in battle. And obviously, you, you can see this throughout the Old Testament many times, the way that people would experience the Lord's blessing or claim the Lord's blessing or show for the congregation the Lord is blessing us is when they have a victory in military battle, right? And one way you know the Lord's cursing is when you go into battle and you get beaten. You go, the Lord has cursed us. It's the same way we think about football teams, right? We go into battle, the Lord is with us, we win the football game. He has obviously cursed our land because our football team fails to win. They thought about it similar ways. All right, the Lord has blessed us, we have military victory. But the main reason that we know that this is some kind of military victory is because this seems, this Psalm 21, seems to be an answer to the previous Psalm, Psalm 20. Now it's been like a year since we covered Psalm 20, and so... I want to draw your attention back to Psalm 20. It should be right there next to Psalm 21 in your Bibles. But you can look up, and I want to show you the parallel passages between the two. All right? Psalm 20, verse 9. So, previous Psalm, Psalm 20, verse 9. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. How does Psalm 21, 1 open? O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation he greatly exults. So the Lord's strength has been demonstrated and as they've been delivered or they've been given salvation from their enemy. He wasn't killed in battle. He was given actual life. God has saved the king and his strength has been demonstrated to his people. Look at verse 4 of, chapter, of Psalm 20. Psalm 20, verse 4. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Look at Psalm 21, verse 2. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. How about Psalm 20, verse 5? May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the, banner, and in the name of our God uh, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Look at Psalm 21, verse 4. He petitioned, he asked, same word, life of you, you gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. Now, question is, 
Were these two psalms written back to back? David puts Psalm 20 to, to work right before they go into battle, turns it into the choir master, goes into battle, receives victory, comes back, writes down his psalm of victory, gives it to the choir master. Maybe, but I doubt it. The reason I doubt it is because right after this, we get Psalm 22, which we'll be in next week. A psalm that you're probably going to hear similar notes to, which we'll talk more about next week. But look at Psalm 22, 1 to 2. This is the next psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Well, that seems like a totally different guy right there. But if you put Psalm 22 next to Psalm 20, it would seem like it was in answer to Psalm 20. Because he's saying the opposite. It didn't happen, right? It's no coincidence that these psalms run the whole gamut of human emotion, which surely you can relate to. Having those moments in your life where the Lord seems to answer your every prayer, He seems abundantly close to you. You come to worship service with the congregation and the music goes quiet and you hear the voices of the congregation sing and you are elated with joy at the closest you feel to the Lord, and then there are times where you feel absolutely forsaken by Him. How come you feel so far from Him? So regardless of when these psalms are written, they're arranged together so that regardless of what season you are in life, you're probably able to relate to something in the range of emotions presented over the next two psalms. So the congregation, though, is celebrating in this psalm the fact that the Lord's strength has been demonstrated to them in the king's favor due to some sort of military victory that the Lord has given them. But the second reason that they're praising the Lord is because His presence has been made known in blessing that He has given to them. His presence has been made known to them because they are immensely blessed. Look at verse 3. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. So the king and all the people are very aware that the Lord has at this moment in their history graced them with his, with his presence. And how do they know that? Because they're experiencing all kinds of rich blessings. Not just victory in battle, but the king is set up nicely. All right? He's got a nice pad. His, he's got a cushy lifestyle, right? It's, he's got health. He's got wealth. He's got a crown of fine gold. He has long life. You've allowed him to live. You've allowed him to live for a long time and reign. He has splendor. He has majesty. All of these are the bounty that overflows from the presence of the Lord. And honestly, aren't these the main things that many of us are concerned with in our daily life? Health and wealth? I mean, when we cut the brass tacks and we just really get down to it, Aren't we mostly concerned 
with our health and our wealth? Take them away, and what do you feel like? Lord, why have you cursed me? Why have you left me here? Bring them to us in abundance, and we feel immensely blessed by the Lord. And it's for good reason that we're concerned with these two things. Because these are the two things, these are two of the things that were taken away in the fall. And think about it. When Adam sinned, his health was taken away. You will surely die. Well, you can't get much more taken away health than that. His wealth, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Now, all the resources are there. It's not that he lacks resources, of course. It's that he's got to work really hard to get them. Which a lot of people won't do. And the earth will, in some cases, not really produce for them. Their labor sometimes will be in vain. So it's given to us in the fall because of the sinful condition that we're in. So all of Israel here is praising the Lord for the strength in their deliverance and the presence of God in the fact that they are blessed because when God has provided for them life or health and wealth, God is, through His King, introducing His kingdom. And when He is introducing His kingdom with its abundance of life, and its, and its wealth, he's pulling back the effects of the fall. Wouldn't you rejoice? When the kingdom of God invades the world through the tip of the spear, in this case David, and we're experiencing life, and we're experiencing blessing, and we're worshiping the Lord, aren't we so encouraged because we see the effects of the fall being peeled away? There is hope on the other side of the curtain. God is here. Well, that segues us into the second point that David is concerned with here. What does it produce? Well, he says, the king trusts in the Lord for future victory. The king trusts in the Lord because of all this. The king trusts in the Lord for future victory. Remember, so far we're just considering this for the original audience, from David's original audience's perspective. So who is singing this? Well, it's the choir or the congregation who's worshiping. They're singing this. But there is a big question, in, starting in verse 8, as to whom they're singing. Who, who are they singing to is the question here in verse 8. He says in verse 8, it could be maybe the Lord that they're singing to. He says, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven. Well, this could be the Lord that he's talking about here, right? You, you Lord, could, will do this, surely. Uh, it, the first part of this, he was singing to the Lord about the king, so it makes sense. He's singing to the Lord. But it's a bit confusing because in the second half of verse 9, he actually calls out the Lord as really separate. Here he's speaking in second person, you. And then he switches to call out third person, the Lord. Look at what he says in the second half of verse 9. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. The fi and fire will consume them. Well, it could also be then that the 
congregation, the choir, is singing about the king. Because of the Lord's blessing in the first half of the psalm, what is the king going to do? He's going to go out and battle. Right? The king has been blessed. The Lord has given him victory. He is confident in what the Lord has done. He's elated by it. And so in the second half of the psalm, he's going to go out into, into battle, and he is going to conquer all of his enemies. And they'll, he's going to put them on the run. But it seems that this second part is supposed to be just a little bit ambiguous as to whom they're singing to. The king might put them to flight, sure, on the battlefield. But it seems that the author is very intent on making you aware that it's the Lord who is swallowing up his enemies. Because it's the Lord, after all, who gives the king strength. The king will be on the battlefield, but the Lord will be supplying the strength and the victory of his hand. So in the end, the congregation praises the Lord for the strength and the power that he supplies to the king, which ultimately ends in a blessing for his people. This, by the way, is entirely consistent with the entire first book, Psalm 1 to 41 of Psalms. Especially when we go back to Psalm 2. Now, I know you will not remember when I preached a sermon on Psalms 2. As good as it was, you won't remember it. You may not even recall what Psalm 2 even says, but it starts like this. And I think you're going to remember this when you hear it. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of, earth, of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against whom? The Lord and against His anointed. Now, who is the Lord's anointed? Well, it's the king, the king of Israel, in this case, David. But in Psalm 2, the nations are plotting against the Lord. How? By plotting against His king. They're coming to attack the king, who is the tip of the spear of the kingdom of God, and therefore, they're actually attacking the Lord who is thrusting the spear. You get it? The king and the hand of the Lord are one and the same as he's thrusting his kingdom into the world to attack the sinful heart of man. They respond in kind by plotting and scheming against his spear to attack him. How? By attacking his king. And so the Lord has set Himself on His throne and He has declared that the people of Israel are His people and the nations are rebelling against the nation of Israel and against the King of Israel and therefore they're rebelling against Him. Alright, so in Psalm 21, David is going to find out all his enemies. He's going to go out onto the battlefield and he's going to find out all his enemies. Who are his enemies? Also, the Lord's enemies. He's going to conquer them and put them in submission to the Lord. And so David is going to make them as a blazing oven when he appears. Because when he appears, the Lord will also appear with him. And will also make his enemies a blazing oven. And the Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. And fire will consume them. Which the fire would be David's army that's coming in to set them ablaze. So the point is here. That David is feeling so close to the Lord, and because the Lord has blessed him so much, he feels nine feet tall and bulletproof. Based on the past blessings of the Lord, he has every reason 
to expect that everything in his future is bright. But this is where we come in reading the Psalms. And you see Psalm 21, but you also know later in the Psalms, it doesn't quite work this way. In fact, in the next Psalm, you know, oh David, it's going to turn. It's going to turn. You also know David's life. And I'm not sure when this psalm was written. I'm going to guess early on in David's life. Because there's certainly going to be a point where David is quite the opposite of nine feet tall and bulletproof. And whether it's an illicit affair that's going to lead him in his power and authority to murder a man, or maybe it's later in his life being exiled from his own country because his son rises up in an attempted coup and drives him off because of, really, as a result of David's own sin and the sin of his family. It seems that we know as we read this, David, your life is going to come to a crashing halt in some places. And you're not going to feel this way then. See, David may be who this psalm is initially about. But it's not ultimately about David. We see some glimpses of the kingdom of God actually coming to fruition here as people of pagan nations are coming to pay tribute and worship the one true and living God under David's rule. Some even under Solomon's rule. And then it starts to tear apart. It's not until Jesus that we actually see some of this come, all of this coming to fruition. See, Jesus' name is written all over the Psalms. They're His Psalms. And so when we read them, we don't initially jump to Jesus. We think, first David, then we come to, what does this actually mean if we're considering Jesus? So when we read the Psalm with David in mind, we think, if David only knew, this ain't going to last. But when we reread the Psalm in light of the one true King over God's kingdom, King Jesus then we know that he does always rejoice in the Father's strength. See, David at some point stops rejoicing in the Father's strength and goes, where are you, Lord? Jesus, however, we know, always rejoices in the Father's strength. The Father, of course, has given Jesus all his heart desires and doesn't withhold any request from his lips. He even tells his, his captors, that if I wanted to, I could call a legion of angels and my Father would send them to me. There's no request from Jesus that His Father would withhold. The Father does give the entire kingdom to Jesus. He does put a crown of fine gold on His head. He has resurrected Him from the dead, bringing Him back to life. He has provided salvation through Him. It's not ultimately David who trusts wholly in the Lord. It is Jesus who trusts wholly in the Lord. Only Jesus was able to maintain that steady hand of trust in the Lord for all of His life. See, all of those elements are brought up in the psalm, and all of them ultimately are about Jesus. Initially true of David, ultimately true in Jesus. And so in the second half of the psalm, is he talking about the king, or is he talking about the Lord? Well, in Jesus, they become one and the same. You don't need to make a distinction. Because in Christ, 
we have a divine human king who comes to conquer all God's enemies and ultimately provides salvation through His death, burial, and resurrection. Now, let's transition to us. There's a tendency when we read the Psalms, we become prosperity gospel theologians. All of us do it. Every single one of us does it. We become prosperity gospel theologians. I want to so badly read the Psalms and put myself in the shoes of David. I want to be David here. I want to say, Lord, I see that the king is blessed forever. I see that the king has his enemies conquered. I see a crown of fine gold on his head. And it's at that moment on my couch where I either say, Lord, let that be me. Or I go, I can't relate to this. Turn the page. (laughs) Because at my heart, sometimes I want to be a prosperity gospel theologian when I read this. I want to see my enemies as the one needing conquered. I'm David here. And I want to just take that right out of Scripture and I want to quote unquote, tell me if you've heard this, claim the promises. Right? I want to claim the promises of this psalm and I want to say, Lord, I got some enemies. Let me label them for you. Let me name them. And they need conquering. And I could preach that from the stage and we start to hear everybody, amen, amen, I got some enemies too. I need conquering. Yep. And then I could say about this psalm, Lord, it says here he trusts in you. I know. If I trust in you, I'll be just like King David here, and I too shall not be moved. Amen? And the congregation go, Amen! Right? And we'd all celebrate. These enemies are going to be slain in your name. Because here's what you got to do. To get to the prosperity gospel, you got to go from David straight to you, and you got to skip Jesus right in the middle. In fact, to believe the prosperity gospel, you got to skip Jesus altogether. How can God want for you to be healthy and wealthy in this life when Jesus lived in poverty and squalor and died at the hands of sinful men? doesn't make sense. Well, you skip Jesus altogether, who was the real king and lived in poverty, to get to me being the king who lives in prosperity. But here's the problem. We're not David. We're the choir. We're the choir. The choir is singing throughout this whole psalm. But when do they speak for themselves? Do you see it in the passage? When do they speak for themselves? Well, it's not until the very end. It's the last line of the psalm, and they say this. We will sing and praise your power. Well, why would they sing and praise God's power? Why would the choir sing and praise God's power here? Think about that question for just a second. Why would the choir sing and praise God's power here? The king is the one receiving victory in battle. 
The king is the one receiving the crown of fine gold and the riches and the treasures. The king is the one being saved in battle. The king's enemies are the ones being swallowed up. What vested interest does the choir have in singing praises about God's power? I'll tell you. You probably already know the answer. The king's victory is the congregation's victory. The king's power is the congregation's power. Jesus Christ is our salvation. And so why do we praise God for giving us the true King David who did come and do all these things perfectly because he is our salvation and how he goes, we as the choir go. We praise God for him because through him we are saved and it's only through him that we are saved. In Christ, what has God done? He has restored health and wealth to his people. The problem is it's not now. It's in the age to come. Revelation 2.7 is our health to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Life. Revelation 2.11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Life. Health. How about wealth? Revelation 2, 26-27. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in, in pieces, even as I myself received authority from my Father. Or Revelation 3, 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. See, these are promises that are only true for us in Christ. So it's only in Christ that these become true of us. This is the fundamental problem you must understand with the prosperity gospel. It's the biggest undersell in history. Many people look at the prosperity gospel and they think, oh, the reason that we're so down on it is because it promises such great things that we possibly couldn't see fulfilled in this lifetime. That's rubbish. We look down on the prosperity gospel and we say that it's not the gospel because it is a dramatic undersell for what the gospel really is and the riches that are really promised there. What they're promising you are trinkets in this life. You understand that everything the prosperity gospel promises you is going to vanish. It's not going to be here in the life to come. It's a dramatic irony that Kenneth Hagin, who was the biggest founder of the American prosperity gospel movement probably died in 2003. You know that? He died. Like if you were to go to Kenneth Hagin's grave and you were to scrape up the dirt, eventually you would hit his casket. And if you opened that, you would hit his bones. He died. It's a strange thing for somebody who believed in the health and wealth prosperity gospel. Why didn't he just name and claim resurrection first? That's the reality of it. All the trinkets that are promised of health and wealth and prosperity. And I could stand up here and say all day, look, you just name and claim healing and God will rid you of that cancer. And then in six weeks you die. Because it turns out you can't name and claim your own health and wealth. Nor why would we want to? 
The kingdom of God that he's thrusting into the world is to pull back the effects of the fall. Not just to pull him back, to get rid of him entirely. And so what you and I look forward to is a life to come where none of that is of any consequence. There is no cancer. There is no death. Don't settle for trinkets when God has for you treasures. The trinkets are all in this life and they equate to McDonald's Happy Meals toys. We know that's true. We know they are. When I said at the beginning of this, they just get more expensive, everybody went, "Mm mm-hmm. You all know they're trinkets. We all know they're trinkets. And he's telling you, don't settle for them. So the choir here has the disposition of singing the praise to the Lord for His power. And he has, through the King, given them salvation. Now the temptation that I face every single day, that you and I both face every single day, is that we tie the Lord's blessing to our finances. We tie the Lord's blessing to how we're feeling in that day. If I have financial trouble, where are you, Lord? If my health gives way, the Lord must be cursing me. We do it with churches too. That church has a lot of people in it. And they're flushed with cash. They're not operating in the red. They must be doing something right. And we ignore the fact that the last church in Revelation, Church of Laodicea in chapter 3, is the richest church of the whole lot. And he says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. They get the worst rebuke, and they're the richest church. They have a reputation of being alive, because 2,000 years ago, they did the same thing with churches. They stepped back and they said, well, they're flushed with cash, and they got all these people everywhere. They must be doing something right. They thought of church like a business, too. And Jesus is telling, shame on you for thinking that. Has the Lord forgotten you? Is the Lord cursing you? Listen, if you're in Christ, He has provided you salvation. How could He curse you? How could He curse you? The salvation that He has provided you through Christ is yours And it is a blessing that He will not take away. How could He have forgotten you when He named you on the cross? How could He have forgotten you when to purchase you back from the dead, it took the blood of His own Son? How could He now, 2,000 years later, have just forgotten you altogether? That makes no sense. What a great comfort this is. He has remembered you in the most impressive way He possibly could. But you understand that if you are in Christ, you will suffer as He suffered. That you are His body, that means you're going to go through the same things that He went through. You may have times of wealth. And it's a test, it's a trial, it's a temptation. Is it now that you're going to forget the Lord in your prosperity? Is it now that you're going to be convinced that it is by your own hand that you provided these things for yourself? 
you're going to have times of poverty or perhaps disease or a number of other things. And there the temptation is to think, did the Lord reject me altogether? The question is, can you be content with the Lord, whether in poverty or prosperity? Can you be content where you are? See, that's the heart. The choir's going to go back and forth because David's going to go back and forth. Their king is going to falter. In some cases, he's going to rise. In some cases, he's going to have immense sin. In some cases, the kingdom's going to be in shambles. And in some cases, it's going to be growing in prosperity. And the choir is going to have to go with the sea, be tossed to and fro as their king is tossed to and fro. Are you tossed to and fro as well? Then it testifies as to who your king really is. Because the king that we worship, who is the true center of this psalm, he's not tossed to and fro. He has won the ultimate victory. So if you, choir, are tossed to and fro in your emotions, if you are not content in the Lord in whatever He has presented you, I submit to you that it's not God you're worshiping. Perhaps this is why Paul can say in Philippians 4, 11-13, a passage I'm sure you're very familiar with, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to respond, uh, how how to abound. In any and every circumstance, that is poverty or prosperity, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens. Now, we put that slogan on the back of a t-shirt and say, that gives me my job interview. It's going to be successful because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No. It means you can be impoverished and still be content. You can be in a church that displeases you from time to time and you can still be content. You can be in a family that is struggling and you can still be content. You can be in the midst of prosperity and not order something on Amazon every day. Remember earlier I said all of Israel is praising the Lord for His strength in their deliverance and His presence in their blessing because in providing them life and wealth, God is, through His King, introducing His kingdom and He's pulling back the effects of the fall. This has ultimately become true for us in Christ. Originally David, ultimately Christ. In Christ, God has reversed the effects of the fall and He will usher us into a kingdom of eternal life and glory that awaits. And so, this life then has become the ultimate test of endurance and faith. Will you now settle for a box of earth toys, of trinkets, Or will you endure whatever hardship you must, trusting in the Lord for your salvation? Because in Christ, He has saved you from all your enemies, and death is chief among them. And because He has saved you from your enemies in Christ, you can absolutely trust that the victory of resurrection from the dead is a sure thing. Because He's done this in the past, He's already reached down to save me 2,000 years ago on the cross. Is He just going to stop now? No. I know that because He did that, 
that He will save me in time to come. That resurrection from the dead is a sure thing. So, the question is to you, the choir of the congregation, will you sing about His power? Will you sing praise to Him who has ex- has demonstrated this kind of power for you, who has saved you. Will you choir now sing and praise His power? Will you exult in His salvation? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that as we read the Psalms, That we ultimately see that it is Christ who has provided salvation for us. I pray that even in the Psalms of Lament, that we can come back to the place where they all end, which is ultimate, ultimately praise for your name. Pray that you would give us hearts that truly desire Christ above all else. We may be in here in desperation, in depression, in the midst of anxiety and discontentment. We may be in the midst of lukewarmness or we may be in the midst of red hotness. And I pray that whatever situation that we are in, that you would address each and every one of us with your word. To those that lack contentment, I pray that you would show them what contentment in Christ really looks like and how little we actually need. For those in the midst of lukewarmness, I pray that they would be excited about your word and about the salvation that you have provided for us in Christ. For those that are in the midst of red hotness, I pray that it would be contagious. That they would set afire the hearts of your people with their genuine contentment in the Lord, their excitement about your word, their enthusiasm about sharing it with other people. I pray that that would be contagious amongst all of us. That we would be a congregation of red-hot believers who are content with everything that you have provided for us. In Jesus' name, amen.